The call equation is this. It's this. The word of God and prayer plus your spiritual gifts plus an inner burden plus your practical skills plus an irresistible desire plus the local church all equals God's call over my life. Now, if you missed last Sunday's service and any of these big points intrigue you, I want to totally, uh, uh, I want to totally push you towards uh, the podcast um, that we are so diligently getting to work up and bring to you. And so if you've missed any of these and you're interested in knowing more, we have a podcast at our website for you to take a look at. And my prayer um, for last week was that the Holy Spirit through the message, begin to clarify the call of God of your life. And for some of you, maybe you're starting to ask that question, what's my call? You're not going to get it overnight. This is a process. But what I want to do is I want to begin to create inside of you a desire to take that journey. And so last week, our prayer was to do just that. This morning, I want to ask that the Holy Spirit would use today's message to create a sense of urgency to live out that call. Because one part of this is knowing your call. The other part of this is actually living it out and creating a sense of urgency. And sometimes I I tell people God's will is interesting. Sometimes the hardest part about knowing God's will is not knowing it, figuring it out, but it is knowing it and having the power to actually go and do it. Many times some of us, we think we know what God wants, but we're too fearful. And so... Uh, The whole game isn't just knowing the will of God, but then it's finding the strength to walk it out um, despite everything that's around us. So can we pray and then we'll get into this morning's message. So Heavenly Father, um, I just thank you for uh, this place. I thank you for uh, what you're doing here at the Crown Plaza, uh, but most importantly, what you're doing inside of every heart and mind in this house, in this place. Lord, I uh, thank you for the call. And I ask, Lord, that you would send us on a journey to discover our gifts, to discover those things that you have designed us to do that would be effective not to use them to serve our ends and our purposes, but that we would use them to give you glory. Today, I pray that the message would create an urgency inside of us to fulfill the call that you've given us. And so, Father, I ask that you would just be with us. Bless us. Bless baby Hannah, Lord. We thank you for her. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. I'm going to take a moment real quick. Just It's getting a little hot up here, and I'm probably going to sweat. So I'm going to take my jacket off for just a second. You guys can look the other way or something like that, you know. (laughs) All right. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's go into Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And we are going to be in the parable of the ten minas this morning. So Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start at verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 13, then I'll pause, and then we'll read the rest of the parable after the brief pause. So Luke chapter 19, 12 through 13. And scripture says this. He said, and that's referring to Jesus. Jesus said, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. 
But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Now let's pause there for a moment. I'm going to go back there in a second, but I just want to break some things down. Last week's message came out of verse 13. Jesus calls his servants, he gives them gifts, and then he sends them out. But I want to look at verse 12, because this is really where the entire parable is laid out. Verse 12 introduces us to four elements, a nobleman, a far country, a kingdom, and an eventual return. So let's break that down really quickly. The nobleman in this story, it's a parable, Jesus is telling a parable. The nobleman in this story is Jesus himself. The far country is not a destination, but it's a delay. That's so important. The nobleman in this story is Jesus himself. The faraway country is not a destination, but it's a delay. And finally, the kingdom will end the kingdom. And the return of the king refers to Jesus going far away, receiving authority, and then one day returning back to his followers. So here's the key to the parable. What will you do while the master delays? In fact, what will you do with, the ma- what, with what the master has given you while he delays? Now let's continue with verse 15. Hopefully you're still there. Verse 15, I'm going to read this parable all the way through to verse 27. Verse 15 through 27 says this, When he returned, referring to the nobleman, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minas had made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe master, or a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew... That I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. Give it to the one who has ten minas. And then they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given but from the one who has not, even, what, even with what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These final 12 verses of the parable give us a glimpse. They give us a glimpse of not only what will take place when Jesus Christ returns, but what will take place beyond his return in the future eternal kingdom. And so I want to point three things out right off of the bat after reading this parable. Number one, when Jesus returns for his church to reign, his people will reign with him. For some, this will even mean 
actively participating in his government. Number two, the amount of authority each individual believer will be given in the coming kingdom will depend upon how faithfully they stewarded the resources given to them in this life. And finally, number three, which is kind of today's big lesson, some believers will enter into the eternal kingdom in abundance, while other believers will enter into that same eternal kingdom in lack. Which is a little interesting, especially when our theology is that, hey, as believers, when Jesus comes, we'll all enter into this new city, new heaven and this new earth. And all of us will have joy, everyone from the beginning to the end. But did you know that even the believers will receive rewards? So in this parable, what I want to do is I want to focus on the two types of servants that are found in this parable. There's the good servant. Well, the good servants, and then there's a wicked servant. So I want to focus, what do these two servants have in common? The good servant and the wicked servant. Well, the first thing I want to point out is that they both have common titles, common identities. What do I mean by that? Throughout the parable, you'll notice Jesus never stops referring to both of them as servants. Even though he'll describe some as good and some as wicked, they're all still servants. This brings up an intriguing question for you and I and for the listeners that were listening to Jesus that day. Could the wicked servant in the parable actually be a follower of Christ? Number two, not only do they have a common title, but they also have a common calling. Not only are they both referred to as servants, but if you remember Each servant has been given a gift and has been sent by Jesus, and I quote, to engage in business until I come. So both servants are not only called and gifted, but both servants are expected to steward those resources faithfully until the nobleman returns. Everybody with me? So what makes one servant good And one servant wicked. I'm dying to know. Well, it's the difference between these two words. Multiplying and maintaining. Multiplying and maintaining. Let's talk about multiplying for the sake of the parable. The first two servants showed faithful stewardship by taking the mina that was given to them and multiplying it for the nobleman. The third servant showed not faithful stewardship, but fearful stewardship by taking the mina that had been given to him and maintaining it by tucking it away until the nobleman returned. Now, from this simple observation, there are three kingdom principles that I really want you to walk out of here with and I really want you to highlight Kingdom principles are very important principles for us as followers of Christ. And if you're sitting here today and you're not sure where you are with Christ, I hope that this would compel you to get closer to him. But it's also a great way just to sit down and hear more of the theology and what we believe about our gifts and our calling. So there are three kingdom principles that I want to highlight through this parable. The first one is this. Faithfulness in this parable is defined as multiplying and not maintaining. 
Faithfulness in this parable is defined as multiplying and not maintaining. And there's a really well-spoken teacher by the name of John Bevere, and I love what he quotes. He says this, In regard to our labor, God views those who multiply as faithful and good, but God views those who maintain as wicked and lazy. According to Jesus in this parable, faithfulness, please hear me out, faithfulness is not about being safe, cautious, and comfortable. According to Jesus in this parable, American church, according to Jesus in this parable, faithfulness is not about being safe, cautious, or comfortable. But it's about taking what God has given to you, multiplying it, and then presenting it back to him once he returns. And so the first kingdom principle is faithfulness in this parable is defined as multiplying and not maintaining. The second kingdom principle, responsibility with the little qualifies us for authority over the big. Responsibility with the little qualifies us for authority with the big. Now, there is both a practical and eschatological truth In this principle, what I mean by practical, there's an everyday way that we can exercise this part. And what I mean by eschatological, it means that there is an end times principle in this. There's something beyond when Christ returns. There's something there's there's a there is a concept that's going to propel us even in the new kingdom when Jesus returns. And so let me first break down some of the practicalities of this concept before I break it, break down the eschatological uh, characteristics. So remember, here's the big principle. Responsibility with the little qualifies us for authority over the big. So I'd like to just give you a practical example. Uh, I remember meeting a man who had been praying for a raise. And for some reason, he felt that he was constantly being overlooked at his job. But he kept praying for this raise. He goes on to tell me that one night he prayed and he felt the Lord speak to him. But the Lord began to discipline him. You, you know what I mean? Anybody ever been praying and you're asking the Lord for something and you were totally thinking you were going to get this like, it's okay, my son, come here. I want to love you. And he does that. But instead in your prayer time, you're like, oh, man, like I got some things I got to fix. Right. It happens every once in a while. Right? We serve a God that exercises graceful, loving discipline. And so he felt. So as I say this, I don't want you to think that the Lord talks to everybody in this way. But for him, this was true. He began to pray and said, Lord, I feel like I'm getting bypassed for this race. And he felt like the Lord challenged him and said this, if I can't trust you to tithe with $60,000 a year, then what, do you, what makes you think I'm going to have you steward with $70,000 a year? Now, I know when it comes to money, that's when a lot of people turn away and say, hey, this church thing is a fraud. That's why I don't go there. But if Jesus isn't Lord over your wallet, then he's not Lord over everything. Okay. Now, again, I want to be careful because I'm not implying that this is what God wants to say to you this morning. But here's what I am implying. God was saying to him, God was disciplining him in this area in his life because he felt when it came to his money, he was being more fearful than faithful in stewarding it. 
Let's go to another practical example and get away from money. Amen. I couldn't wait to fly right through that one. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to be scared to talk about that. uh, Second, another practical example I want you to hear out. Personally for me, and I had a great conversation um, uh, with Jerry and Mikey over this over lunch. We were just dialoguing back and forth. But personally, for me as a pastor, I'm always looking to develop leaders. Because I believe, just like the home is only as strong as the mom and dad, the church is only as strong as its leadership. And so we should never stop looking to promote leaders, develop leaders, groom leaders. We should always be not just about discipling, but also raising up leaders to disciple. In fact, if you're in this church right now, there is an aspect in which God is calling you to lead. And so it's all about leadership development. The healthier the leadership is, the healthier the church is, right? And so that's so important to me. So as a pastor, I'm always looking to develop leaders. And this principle has truly impacted my leadership philosophy, and I'll say almost, and I'm going to leave a little percentage there, almost 99% of the time, because sometimes the Lord likes to throw you a curveball. You just can't, you know what I mean? You put a law or a rule on God, and then he'll, twist, he'll throw it upside down on you. Again, his word is his word. It doesn't change. But there are things where sometimes you think, oh, God's going to do it like this. He's done it like this all the time, and all of a sudden he just flips it on you, right? And so I want to say almost 99% of the time, maybe 95% of the time, um, I will look at leaders And I will not promote someone to the next level until they've proven faithfully consistent at the level that they are currently in. And if you you are a manager or if you work in any position outside of church where you're leading people, you know that that principle makes sense. Are you with me? In fact, a lot of times, you know, I will run into some individuals that really have aspirations to be greater than where they are. And that's okay because that's leadership. I don't have a problem with somebody saying, hey, look, I feel like I can do more. I don't think that's rebellious. But here's what I do want to make sure that I pour into the concrete of someone's integrity, the foundation of someone's integrity, whether in the church or outside of the church. If you want to do something more, a great indicator of how successful you'll be in the more is what you're doing right now with what you have. And if you can't manage your house... If you can't manage your children, in fact, that's scripture. Scripture tells us that elders of the church, pastors of the church, according to Paul, writing to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, he's saying if someone wants to be a pastor of the church, they first need to take care of their own house. He says they got to be good reputation, right? So somebody wants to be a pastor, but the entire church is like, oh, then you know what? It's not happening. They have to be of good reputation, They have to not be given into much wine. They are not drunkards. They're not depending on alcohol. They must be very careful with their alcohol consumption. And another thing is this. It's not only do they, but they also have to manage their home well. Because if their home is, and that means financially, that means their children, that means their wives, their husbands. And the idea is that if you are going to promote somebody into a place of leading the body of Christ, they need to be able to lead their home. Amen? Are you guys listening to me? That's all Bible, I promise you. And so you have to be faithful in the little in order to get the big. So those are two practical examples. Now let me give you an eschatological example. It's just a theological term. But here's the eschatological example. When Jesus comes back... For his church, he will call all his followers to himself 
to give account for what they have done with the gifting and calling over their life. Now, some people, I don't necessarily, I, I think it's a pretty interesting comment. I'm not quite sure I haven't done it. But some people say, you know, when we get to heaven, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Right? And you think to yourselves, man, when we get in the presence of the Lord, why would we even be sad? Right? When we get into the presence of the Lord, how could we be lacking? How, why would we be sad? And the reality is we're in the presence of the Lord. We'll be a joy unspeakable. But there's this element or this time in Scripture where he said Jesus is going to wipe tears from our eyes. Now, granted, I believe we're probably going to be weeping over the souls that haven't come in. We're going to be weeping over some of the people that we walked with for a very long time. Maybe we never shared the gospel with them. You know, and Jesus does tell a, a parable about a man who's, who's in the pit and he's crying out and he's saying, man, can you go and tell my brothers not to come here? You know, how many people, and I, I often think of this personally, I don't want anyone to ever, I don't want my best friends or my family or whoever it is to be in that place thinking, so why didn't Philip tell me about this? Why didn't he do everything he could? Yeah, I rejected him a few times, but why didn't he tell me this place is real? Are you with me? Now, we know that some people are going to reject Jesus um, but nonetheless, this is, a, this is a powerful moment that in the end, that Jesus is going to wipe away tears. But I also think maybe he wipes away tears because there are going to be some of us that didn't do everything God had called us to do. And we're going to look back and say, wow, how fruitful we could have been for the kingdom. Amen. So Jesus is going to call his followers to himself to give account for what they did with the gifting and calling that he gave them. What we are currently doing with what God has given us today directly affects what we will be doing in eternity. Number three. This is important. Fearfulness can hinder faithfulness. Fearfulness, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I, I'm there, trust me. Fearfulness can hinder faith. Can you feel that a little bit? There's a fear inherently in the call of God fearfulness can hinder faithfulness and I want you to hear the second part fearfulness can hinder faithfulness and has the power to replace a life of fulfilled purpose with a life of poor excuses we kind of hinted at this earlier although the servant is called wicked he's still a believer in fact, he seems to be distinguished from the rebellious citizens. You guys remember at the beginning of the parable? He said he calls his servants to him and he gives them minas, right? And he says, go out and engage in business. And then he says, but the citizens didn't want him to reign over them. And at the end of this parable, he calls his servants to him and he asks them what they did with the minas. But do you remember? He says, you know, for those citizens that didn't want nothing to do with me, slaughter them. Do you remember that part? There, there is... <laughs> there is there is a distinguishing between the servants and the citizens. Notice it's the servants that are, or it's the citizen, the rebellious citizens that are destroyed, but the wicked and good servants are not. So we ask that question, could this wicked servant, although called wicked, be a believer? And here's the million dollar question. How could anyone call themselves a follower of Christ and tell this to Jesus in his face? Like, I don't think anybody on that day is going to walk up to Jesus and be like, Right? I think we're all going to be in fear. But here's what the parable says. And here's the million-dollar question. No believer in their right mind is going to say this. I was afraid of you. 
because you are a severe man, Jesus. You take what you do not deposit and you reap what you do not sow. Imagine a believer saying that. All of you are like, not me. Thank you for preaching this. I'll make sure on that day I don't say that. Right? We're thinking, surely I would not say that. Surely I would never even think that. I never say that. Nor would I ever blame Jesus for not moving in the gift and call over my life. But please hear my heart. Hear my heart on this, please. When we sit on our gift, when we fail to use our time, our talent, and our treasure for God's glory, we say with our hearts what this wicked servant is saying with his mouth. Jesus, I did not multiply because you always get something for nothing. Can I be gently challenging this morning? I'm working on my gentleness. Give me permission. Some of you are like, well, you're going to do it anyway, so. Could this be what we say to Jesus when we are not faithfully engaging in the mission that God has called us to engage in? Could we be saying, Jesus, you always ask for something for nothing. You are severe. I don't honor you with all that I am. I don't honor you with all that I have. I don't honor you with everything you've given to me because I fear that you always put me last. You don't take into consideration my life. You don't take into consideration my goals. You don't take into consideration my paycheck, my career, my desire to be married. Jesus, you're a severe man. You always ask me to do things and you never give me anything in return. I am afraid to use my gifts for God's glory because my career, my life, my marriage, my singleness all hinges on the balance. And I'm not willing to compromise that because I don't believe you have my best interests in mind. Could it be that our theology of the call is that it's too much, too costly, and too insensitive of Jesus to ask me to do or lay things down? If so, I'd ask you that you would reconsider your theology and begin to think with eternity in mind. And here's what I want you to know about Jesus. He's not a severe man. He's a great giver. Jesus is the greatest gift giver of all time. He will never leave your labor uncompensated. You will always get way more than you anticipated. And you will always be rewarded way more than you ever could have thought, dreamed of, or imagined. Nothing you give up for God doesn't come back in the form of some sort of spiritual blessing. And we don't do it for the blessing, but Jesus is a blesser. It's just what he does. Nothing I've ever let go of, nothing that I've ever stepped into that I was scared to step into, nothing I've ever done for Jesus, I've ever felt failure about, that I've felt scared about, nothing that I've ever done has come back and discouraged me or let me down. And here's what I, those times that I have thought that I've done for Jesus and it was discouraging or it was let down is because I put my eyes on man and not on Christ. Whenever you're upset in ministry, it's never because of Jesus. It's probably because of some man or some expectation that you felt wasn't meant. So be careful what expectations you put on me because I will fail you. 
I will. I'll do my best. The guidance of the Lord. But I am flesh and full of sin. And I'll fail you. If you stay here long enough or you get close to me long enough, you'll know. You'll see it. Could it be that our theology of the call is that it's too costly, too insensitive of Jesus to ask us to do or lay down some things? If so, I ask you this morning to reconsider your theology and your thoughts about who Jesus is. It's obvious that this wicked servant didn't know the character of his God. Jesus is the greatest gift giver. Amen? And so I want you to hear this. The beautiful part is the wicked servant didn't lose his salvation. Amen? Hey, some of us are going to get in there. <laughs> we, we know he didn't do much for the Lord. We were a little scared. You know, we never made him. Jesus, look, I love you with all my heart. You're still my son. Get in here. Right? So check this out. The wicked servant did not lose his salvation, but he did lose his reward. So I, I hope, and my prayer has been that this parable is creating a stirring. Right? An urgency inside of us. And I want to pray for that stirring before we end. But I want to conclude today's message. I want to conclude today's message. And what I want to do is um, I want to look at and I want to pray for um, and I want to give you some very practical steps that should help guide you. As you move forward into understanding what it is you've been called to do and the urgency to do it. Because it would be insensitive for me to kind of create this urgency and not give you some steps to move forward. And again, last week, go back to last week's message. I definitely think that will really help you. Um, But here's what I want to do. Um, For the servants in this story, it was Minas. But for you and I, it's our time, it's our talents, and our treasures. And I want to leave you with four guiding principles that will help us look more like the good servant rather than the wicked servant on the day Christ returns. And these four kind of guiding principles are as follows. Stewardship, discovery, development, and deployment. And I'm going to break each one down and then I'll pray over you and we'll finish this morning. Stewardship, discovery, development, and deployment. So let's talk about the very practical concept of stewardship when it comes to our gifting. Here's what I need you to know. You ready? Stewardship points towards ownership. Although the minas were given to the servants, they did not belong to the servant. Y'all hear me? Although the resources were given to the servant, they actually didn't belong to the servant. They belonged to the nobleman. Hear me out. I believe one of the greatest hindrances to living out your call is a sense of entitlement. Write that down. Underline it. Pray over it over your life. Entitlement. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 reminds us that we have received gifts. Then he says, as good stewards of God's grace. This means nothing we have actually belongs to us. Do you know that? Your talents are not yours. Your time, not yours. Your money doesn't even belong to you. 
So when Christians, now let me clarify Christians, not unbelievers. When Christians become lethargic in their serving or stingy in their giving, they are not glorifying God with what already belongs to him. Entitlement will get you in trouble because you think it's your resources to do with what you will. But it's been given to you. This is where the gospel lenses of last week really come into play and impact our lives. Are you allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to minister to your time, talent, and your treasures? Are you allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to minister to your wallet? Some of us wonder. Some of us wonder, God, where are you? Some of us wonder, God, what am I called to do? And the first place it starts is to steward those things that are right in front of you well. You with me? In fact, many of you who've gone through membership at Inspire here at the church, and um, when we go through membership class, you actually sign a covenant. Like, wait a minute, we signed something? You sign a covenant. And on that covenant are these concepts of discipleship. And as a member of Inspire, we do our best as leaders to hold you accountable to call of God over your life. And if you realize when you sign that covenant, you know what the covenant says? The covenant is commitment to giving financially. The covenant is commitment to serving on teams. Some are like, well, where do they come up with this? This is just a scheme or whatever. No, what we're doing, we're holding you accountable to the things that God has called you to do. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a space where you can practice out your discipleship. We're trying to create a space where you're encouraged. And we're not going to condemn you and kick you out, say you're this and that. But we're trying to encourage you and inspire you to begin to move in those things that God has called you. And if it wasn't for those things, some of us, we probably wouldn't even be ministering. We'd probably be coming every Sunday, hearing the message and leaving, but not allowing it to impact us practically. This is why we do this. And so stewardship points to ownership. I do it because it doesn't belong to me. Secondly, discovery. This is so important. Please hear me out. As followers of Christ that take the call serious, we should begin to ask the Holy Spirit to take us on a journey of discovery. The journey starts with God's word and prayer and continues through the local church, through discipleship and community. And let me give you really three quick practical tips on how to discover this thing inside of you. Are you ready? Number one, I want you to ask yourself this question. What are my natural talents and abilities? Really this week, ask yourself this. I'd love for you to just make a list for yourself. You don't have to come in next week and turn it in. You know, you're going to grade junior. We're not going to do any of that. But I want you to really, some of you probably don't even think of this, but I really want you to start thinking about these things. I I would love for everyone in here. Number one, ask yourself, what are my natural talents and abilities? What do I mean by that? These are abilities that come easier to you than they do others. Don't be afraid to even ask other people. One of my personal favorite self-discovery methods is asking questions to other people. What do you think I'm good at? Some of you are like, I would never ask them. It sounds, but no, tell me, what do you think I'm good at? Help me discover this. 
right? And I'm going to get really practical on you, but I, for some of you who have been here for a while, you know that I really love the assessment tests called Strength Finders. Again, they're not paying me any money. But if you have a little extra time, about 19 bucks, you could take Strength Finders. They do an amazing job of helping you discover some of these kind of innate things inside of you that help you understand how you work. Just like, Maybe. <laughs> I have an interesting story with strength finders. I took it. There's kind of like, I call it like two or three different steps that I went through. You know, the first stage was the denial stage. And so I lived in the denial stage for two or three months. I wish I was this. How come I got these five? You know what I mean? The strength finders basically they give you the top five, what they feel are your themes or things that you do well in. And these top five come out. And I, and I started reading it. And I'm like, yeah, that kind of sounds like me. But I sure wish I was that. I'm like, maybe I'll take the test again and answer the questions differently so I can look more like that. That would be cheating. And so I call that first stage is like denial stage, right? You're totally like, I wish I was like this. I'm like that. And then, and then the second stage is kind of like, well, what was this for? You know, like you're six months down the road, you're kind of like, okay, I got these top five. That's great. And it's so funny. They give you a breakdown of what your top five are. And you YouTube it, and there's people that come on and talk to you. And another thing, again, I'm not chauvinistic whatsoever, but it's like of my top five, four of them were women. They were like, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I like to organize things. And I'm like, oh, man, like, I was like, well, is there going to be a guy in here somewhere, right? I can tell some of you don't appreciate that, but I tell you sometimes I'm a little inappropriate. I'm just telling you what's going on in my life. Pray for me. But I was just like, man, I feel like I got all of these, I'm, you know, some men are strong, and they work with their hands, and I'm just not good at that. I don't work on cars. I got this whole horror story I could tell you about in my life. You know, my wife's like, Phil, I'm broken down. I'm like, Ugh. you know, I'll call AAA, babe. I'll be there just to be with you. But call AAA, babe, right? You know, you pop the hood and get the ceremonial look. You don't even know what's going on. You're just like, yeah, I think it's the defibrillator. <laughs> Clear. <laughs> Love you, babe. But straight finders is an amazing thing. Ask yourself, what are my talents and abilities? Number two for discovery, ask yourself, what are my passions? What am I passionate about? Again, take time this week to answer this. What am I passionate about? Passions are things that naturally give us energy. They naturally give us life. Passions are things that they energize us, they give us life, they recharge our batteries. A good way to discover the passion is to ask yourself, if money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing with my life? If I, if money, if I were to wake up tomorrow and money wasn't an issue, what would I do with my life? Because here's what we do know. A lot of us think that we, we hate work. Did you know that God created us to work? And you know that we love the work. It's just that we're not working in a place that's hitting our unique purpose. But when you find that thing, it's called your sweet spot, and you begin to work in that sweet spot, you all, all of a sudden it starts to energize you and not drain you. Right? So in Genesis, we were created to tend the garden. We were, we were created to administer the garden. And I got news for you. We're going to be creating with Jesus in the eternal kingdom. And it's not that we hate to work. It's just that we haven't found what we love to do. And here's another thing. When sin came into the world, sin didn't give us work. It attacked work. If you look at Genesis, what happened was it was, oh, sin's in the world. Now you've got to work. No, it was sin's in the world, and you love to work. You love purpose. You love doing and creating. You're a reflection of the Father. You're a reflection of God, the image of God. But here's what's going to happen, what sin does. Sin came in and made work 
difficult and you started to sweat from your brow and the work began to grow thorn and thistle and you begin to hurt yourself as you work and be frustrated. Do you understand? All right. So ask yourself, what are my natural talents and abilities? Secondly, ask yourself, what are my passions? A good way to discover that is ask yourself, if money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing with my life? I love a question uh, that used to get thrown at me all the time is, if it's two in the morning and you're asleep, what conversation or what topic would you kind of half awake and hear that would wake you up and you go and join it? That's what you're passionate about. Right? You come into my house, you talk about some things at two in the morning, like, please get out or talk slowly. I'm just silently, quietly, I'm trying to sleep. But if you come and you start talking about leadership, you start talking about church planting, you start talking about I can get into intricacies of things, I'm probably getting up out of a dead sleep. I'm sitting down, joining in and dialoguing with you. Are you with me? Number three, ask yourself, what burdens you? What are your burdens or your convictions? Let me ask you a question. When you look in the cities, what breaks your heart? Right. Could be the homelessness of people. It breaks your heart. Some of you could be orphans, widows. It could be unemployment. It could be families that are out on the streets. There's so many different things that could break your heart. What breaks your heart? Ask yourself, what, what burdens, what conviction, what breaks your heart? What makes you cry? Or what drives you to action in order to see change? There's some things that we look at, we feel bad about, but we don't do anything. There are other things that every time we see it, we feel an urge to do something. That's a deep compassion. Compassion causes you to move. It's not compassion until you actually act. And the last two, you guys have been great staying with me. Here's the last two. Um, we, have dis- we had stewardship. We had discovery. Now we have development. And there's an impor- important lesson to be learned here at this point. Hear me out. Just because you have the gift doesn't mean you're ready to use it. Sometimes you have it and people still aren't promoting you. And it's, yeah, you have it, but you haven't learned to steward it. You with me? Listen to this. Gifts need to be sharpened and developed. Otherwise, they might be carelessly used. A careless gift is a dangerous gift. And it has the power to hurt people and not heal people. I say that again. A careless gift is a dangerous gift. And it has the power to hurt people. Instead of healing people. Development and process helps the one who has the gift. Use the gift with wisdom and integrity. This is why I love how we do leadership and membership at Inspire. All members are empowered to serve. And in that process, you develop your gifts. And all members are not disqualified, but have an opportunity to advance and lead at Inspire if they're faithful in the little. Serving on teams is a great way to discover and develop your gift. And if you have a desire to lead at Inspire, serve on a team, lead well, and you'll be promoted. I always tell people the entry level of leadership at this church is fat, faithful, available, and teachable. If you're faithful, available, and teachable, God will promote you. Notice I didn't say you're the best looking. Or notice I didn't say you're the best dressed. I didn't say you have the best gifts. Faithful, available, and teachable. Give me somebody who's faithful, available, teachable, and I'll take them over someone who is gifted, but is not faithful, not available, and doesn't want to be taught. 
Are you with me? Finally, deployment. I love how Jesus phrases the parable. The nobleman called his servants, gave them to Minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. As you grow, it won't happen overnight, but something amazing will begin to happen. Stewardship, discovery, and development will integrate and become a sweet spot. That sweet spot is where we are most energized and have the biggest kingdom impact. And that is deployment. And this is where God is willing to take every one of his servants if they trust him. If they trust him. This is where he's willing to take every one of his servants if they trust him. Amen? I want to finish. And I want to read you. If you have your Bibles, I want to finish. Um, and I want to read something to you. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm probably catching the team off by surprise. I'm going to... I was kind of debating whether I was going to read this, but Ephesians chapter 4. My sister Priscilla, if you come up and just play before I pray for everyone, and just, I just really want to share this. And again, we're almost finished, and I just want to pray over your, your process. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And again, we probably won't have it up here on the monitors for you, but we'll definitely, if you have your Bibles or your apps, that's totally okay. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. I love the book of Ephesians, and again, we'll probably at some point enter into a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, but it's about the beauty of the church of God. Beautiful picture of the church. Can you all go with me for a moment in Scripture and just get lost in this description of the church? As the Holy Spirit penned this through the Apostle Paul, he writes about the church. And as many things, a lot of times in our day and age, we hear so many bad things about the church. And, you know, we have so many misconceptions about the church and we've been hurt. And, but the, the church is God's glorious institution on this earth. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start with verse 11. And I'm going to read 11 through 13. And I would just ask that you would let the words of the Spirit through his scripture, minister to your heart regarding the church. And it reads like this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now skip to verse 15. And I'm going to read the second half of verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from who the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm going to read that whole thing one more time. Bear with me. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Skip to verse 15. We are to grow up in every way 
into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Wow. What a beautiful, poetic description of the church when all of its members are on mission, living out their call. After reading this, I think to myself, how could anyone have an issue with that? This is our desire. This is our destination at Inspired Church. Let's pray.